Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Megan Wildhood, a host on New Books and Poetry, a part of the New Books Network. I'm here with um, Karen Rigby, and I'm very excited to talk about uh, her collection that is coming out in 2024. So uh, born in the Republic of Panama in 1979, Karen Rigby now lives and writes in Arizona. Her latest poetry book, Fabulosa, is forthcoming from Jack Lake Press in 2024. Her debut poetry book, and I'm going to ask you to say this title. Chinoiserie. Chinoiserie. Was selected by Paul Hoover for a 2011 Sawtooth Poetry Prize. Karen's work has been honored by a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship, a Vermont Studio Center Fellowship, and an Artist Opportunity Grant from the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council. She is a 2023 recipient of an Artist Opportunity Grant from the Arizona Commission on the Arts. Her poetry is published in journals such as the London Magazine, Poetry Northwest, the Oxygen Review, and Australian Book Review. She's a freelance book reviewer and lives in Arizona. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. I'm so excited to talk about your forthcoming book. Thank you, Megan. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so I would like to start uh, with this uh, this line. As a fellow poet, jumped out at me. Um, it's from the poem called Why My Poems Arrive Wearing Black Gloves. And it goes, a poem is a diamond heist. And I would love to hear where that came from, how that uh, reflects your writing, kind of what your um, what you hope for in your poems, how they come to you. Anything you want to share about that line? I love it so much. Well, Fabulosa is my second book, and after I'd written my first one, I found myself with a blank slate. I was starting from scratch all over again. So, for me, a lot of writing is reading, and a lot of us have probably heard that. So I was reading a lot of Diane Seuss. She has this great collection called Four-Legged Girl. 
And I was also reading Amelia Phillips. And both of them have this really bold, kind of risky, bodily type of writing that takes all kinds of risks. And I knew that I wanted to write something that was very different that I hadn't done before. I wanted a more playful kind of tone. I wanted to use a different vocabulary. I wanted a different frame of reference. So as I was thinking about that, the poem that you mentioned, Why My Poems Arrive Wearing Black Gloves, like that title just came into my mind. And I went from there. And when I got to this passage, it might make more sense if I actually read the poem, but when I got to the phrase about noir and glitz, that gave me a mood in a direction. I knew I wanted a kind of dark glamour, and that took me down the road of thinking about a kind of cinematic, maybe vintage Hollywood, black and white film, and that brought me to the line about a poem is a diamond heist. It, it seemed to have this kind of confidence and elegance and just wildness to it that it felt true to the spirit of what I was trying to aim for. Yes, I agree. I got that feeling from this whole collection. It was uh, it was playful. It was sassy. It's um, there's a lot of very serious topics too. It was a an amazing collection of um, playful and serious and uh, very vulnerable. Um, there are some some moments in there that really uh, reached in into uh, into my <laughs> into my heart. Pulled out some things um, that I that made me feel very seen uh, in a way that I think uh, that. That that's that's the goal of writing is to to uh, help readers feel seen and this really this really did that. Um, I I love the the like confident elegant tone that that for sure came across in the collection um, as a whole. One of the things I found really interesting uh, is that this is a really self aware collection. Um, it's one that sort of refers to itself. Um, and then kind of talks about itself sort of, it gives like a roadmap, like a sort of slant roadmap. And um, it also addresses the reader in uh, in a really awesome, in a awesome, like totally self-confident way, which invites, at least in my experience, invites the reader in. Um, and it really does, um, as you say in the poem, uh, Tangelo, uh, plant you reader in the thick of it. That's one of the lines in there. Um, and so this was a very immersive experience as a reader. And I'm wondering how that was for, for you um, as, a, as a writer, like what the experience was of putting this collection together and kind of how long it took for this collection to come into being. Wow, that's a lot for me to take in, but I'm so glad that this book resonated with you. I had a sense that this was kind of an autobiographical book but I wanted to approach it, as you mentioned, kind of sideways or from an angle or, you know, like that Dickinson line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That's exactly what I was going for. I'm glad that you saw that in this collection. And you mentioned that how I address the reader, that too. Um, there are a lot of poems in the book that are about poetry. It's not only the opening poem, but I kind of structured the book so that there would be at regular intervals these why my poems do this or that. So in a way, I'm writing about why I write. It, it's kind of an argument for the way that I think, the way that I feel about things. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of losing track of what you asked me originally. 
No, that's okay. That was that was a lot there. Um, it's a, definitely about the structure. I did notice the why my poems do this, why my poems do that. Um, and I was thinking of exactly the Emily Dickinson line, telling the truth, but telling it slant. Um, and I think it's uh, sort of the, what I was uh, getting at is the immersive experience. And uh, which um, is one of the interesting things is it, uh, to me seemed that yes, it, it was autobiographical and it kind of evoked sort of a lot of um, my own story. I think that um, we can use our, our own stories as writers to bring up uh, things for the reader. Um, and I, I really liked how it seemed like you kind of peeled back the, the, you know, the curtain behind writing and sort of let the reader into, you know, like, okay, this is why this happens. This is why this happens, which is really rare. I think um, poetry can be a very mysterious to a lot of readers. And this sort of kind of gives you uh, the reader uh, a way into um, this poem. And so uh, it sounds like that was kind of a conscious decision um, to kind of have those periodic like mile markers, um, if you will. Uh, to let readers in or did it kind of come out as you were uh, putting this collection together? Well, I mentioned earlier that this is my second book and that I was starting all over again because in many ways, when you write your first book, you've had your entire life to accumulate everything towards that work. So how do you start all over again? So that opening poem, Why My Poems Arrive Wearing Black Gloves, it was very deliberate. I used it as a blueprint. That's where the section titles come from. There's Mar and Glitz, um, Wolf Behind the Saint in the director's cut. Those are the separate sections from that. But I also kept going back to the image of the gloves. There's a lot of poems that cover gloves in various ways, whether it's a figure skate or a painting. And while I was doing that, I thought, okay, if I'm going to use this opening poem and keep returning to it, kind of like I've set the theme, now I'm going to have variations. Like that's the mindset I had going into it, but books have a way of surprising you. I mean, you start out with this intention and you think you know what the plan is gonna be and then it entirely changes for you. And that happened to me when I wrote the poem about Endeavor, which is this British TV mystery series. I watched it around 2019 and it struck me. It was so atmospheric, it's historical, the story is so rich. So then I can't even explain it. I decided I'm going to write a poem about this. So I started going through the poem. And as you go through it, it's almost listing the various episodes of the various crimes and the details until I got to this line about the girl that I can't bring back. Because like in a lot of um, crime shows, the plots tend to circle around very common themes. And one of them is that of the missing girl or the girl who comes to harm. We're all familiar with that. It's almost a trope. But in this case, when I wrote that line, the girl I can't bring back, I realized I'm writing about myself here. This, this is, it's me. And that led me to write the poem, Girl I Can't Bring Back. And once I did that, it was kind of a floodgate. I realized I'm not writing a book just about pretty things that I like, like the derby hats or Dior's bar suit or paintings or whatever else. I'm actually writing about my own past. And I was not expecting that whatsoever. But once I did that, I thought, I'm just going to go with this. I'm going to trust this instinct. 
And that led into writing some of the poems in the second and third sections. And the book became about so much more than just the fabulosa sense of all of these things that I like. It became a way of, oh, all of this is in hindsight, right? Because you never really know what you're really writing about until you've written it. And then you can go back and you can trace what influenced you or like, oh, so that's what I was going for. That's what actually happened. But in this case, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know I was going to write about myself and I did. So in that way, going back to the idea that I wanted to take a risk, I think I did. Yeah, um, it is uh, writing about oneself is is very vulnerable and vulnerable vulnerability is always very risky, um, but it's it's such a beautiful risk. I think one of the um, most vulnerable lines uh, that struck me, I'm sure there's there's so many that uh, we um, we won't get to, but this one uh, in particular was um, just so it was it was almost very confessional in a in a very uh, vulnerable way um, from the poem called portrait as Latin American film festival entry number 37. And you write, once as a child, you threw a stone at another child. Easy to believe we can't be evil. The mind, like a perilous vine, snakes through memory, pretending none of it happened. And that, I mean, I had a flash of several moments like that where I was like, oh, I was the aggressor. I was the person who did the wrong thing. How easy it is to forget all of that. And the, the perilous vine, oh, I just, I love all of it. I was like, yes, this was, this was my experience. Um, and it's just such, such vulnerability to say, as a child, you threw a stone at another child. Um, of course, we're children. We can make all the excuses. Oh, we didn't know better. But it's just, this is just such, this captures the vulnerability in this whole collection. And it's so interesting to hear that um, the autobiographical nature of this surprised you and that that wasn't uh, intentional, but it showed up. I love things like that in writing where it's like not consciously put in there, but then the collection kind of tells you what it's about. Um, you have one intention and then it kind of goes sideways into this other be uh, beautiful um, way that uh, I really, I felt very seen by that line. Um, it also is an interesting um, thought about uh, memory. It snakes through memory, pretending none of it happened. There are a lot of instances um, about memory and how memories formed too in this um, collection. Like there's another line from the poem, Watching Freddie Lion in the Hour. And it says, what do we owe memory? Um, so I've said a lot. I would love to hear your thoughts uh, on memory and how that played a role in this collection and kind of how it plays a role in writing yours and kind of in general. So a lot of it has to do with hindsight. Like now I'm 44 and I'm able to write about topics that I wouldn't have been able to write 10 or 20 years ago or at the moment when they actually happened. I think writing needs that kind of lengthy reflection before you even know what it is that you want to say about whatever it is that had happened. So in that sense, memory is this very powerful kind of force. I mean, it, it can subside, you can bury it, it can resurface. 
when you least expect it. So how do you address it? What, what do you do with this kind of material? And I think for me as a writer, something that's really shaped my way of thinking is a book by Madeline Langle. Like most people know her for A Wrinkle in Time, but she's also written this book called Walking on Water, which is a series of reflections on how faith intersects with art and writing. And she's got this great quote that I'll give you if you just hand me a second here to find it. Absolutely. I love this book so much. <laughs> so she has a line that says, when the artist is truly the servant of the work, the work is better than the artist. And that's always stayed with me that the work or the poetry, if you will, it's not here to serve me. It has to be the other way around. And that comes with a kind of humility and responsibility, whether that's responsibility to the truth or a willingness to say the unsayable or to do what that piece of art that you're working on needs for that moment. Even if I'm resisting it and my natural inclination might be like, no, I don't want to go there. I, I don't want to do that. If I'm going to be a servant to that work, then I have to be obedient to the impulse. I have to write what's come to me in that moment and be honest about it. So in that sense, you could say that faith plays a large background role in the way that I think about writing, even if the subjects of the poems that I'm writing about never explicitly go there. They don't mention it. The topic might be entirely unrelated. There's this underpinning underneath all of that, that you are a servant to the work. So that maybe that answers your question in a roundabout way. That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for bringing that quote in. I, uh, that quote, when I read uh, Walking on Water, also, uh, it re I remember being, it just totally reframed um, what writing actually was for me. It's not about showing off. It's not about showcasing how smart you are. It's not about you at all. It's about the work. Um, and I, I really, even as this, co this collection is autobiographical, there's also a stepping away and getting out of the way of the work that happens. Um, and so this is, this is, I was picking up on that. And then now I, I'm putting together why, why I was sensing that. Um, so it was, it's, it's hard to do, but it's really, uh, if you are as the creator, as the writer, the servant of the work, then the work is the one that is leading. And it's, and I love that the, the work is better than the artist. And it's, that's what makes good art. I think good writing, good poetry. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart protein plus and keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com 
slash NBN50 to get 50% off. There, this might be a, a good uh, segue into um, <laughs> speaking of saying things that uh, we may not want to say. There's a poem in here. Um, there, you, you mentioned one of them that I would love to have you read at the end called Girl I Can't Bring Back. But there is this other poem um, called Things I Never Told You. And as I was reading it, uh, and I, I found myself quoting every line, like, oh, I'm going to pull out this line and talk about this. And then I want to pull out this line and talk about this. And I want to pull out this line and talk about this. And by the time I got to the end of the poem, I had quoted the whole poem. So I wondered if you would read uh, Things I Never Told You. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Things I Never Told You. I cut my childhood face from the album the year I wanted to erase myself. My upper thighs tattooed where you can't see. In another life, I stole prescription drugs to die, but seized alone all night. I keep the darkest part of me out of these poems, like straining blood from broth, because I never stopped wanting you to love me. I never told you about the bridge John Berriman died from, or the railings I raked my glove across each night. I ran home when I taught. My heart is a bee swarm shaped like a splitting mall. I wish I were a better saint, but I need you to show me what a mouth's good for. I play New Order's academic on repeat when I want to forget. I'm scared of drowning in freeways, but also of sleeping with the door ajar. In a version where Snow White became a velvet automaton, those lungs pressed in the hunter's box were never a boar's, but hers. I never told you I stayed alive because what's left after years in a desert, if not the hope of deluge? I've only got one oar, but it's good enough to bring me to you. Tell me everything's fine. Say it even when I close my eyes. Mm. Thank you so much for that poem. Um, and thank you for saying um, what it doesn't, what doesn't want to be said, what's hard to say and what um, we often never say. Uh, I think this is a, this is a difficult subject to write about. Um, and I'm very glad that it's in this collection. It adds a layer to all of the other poems, uh, at least for me. Um, I read the collection twice and it was a completely different experience the second time after I'd read this poem. And so I I think this is a this is a, a very strong poem that for me it was a it was a hinge point. There's always one of the one or two poems where there's a hinge point, I I think. And I think this was this was that poem. Um, what was the experience writing this poem like? I would have to put this poem in the category of the poems I never thought that I would write. I've circled around the subject in various ways many decades ago, and none of those poems ever seemed to hit the right note. So it wasn't until I had a very specific you in mind, things I never told you, which I'll just keep that to myself. But that enabled me to just explore this material, which, as you've said, is difficult to write about. And 
even though it comes late in the book, you're absolutely right. It is one of the keys to the whole collection as a whole. So yeah, I mean, it's one of those subjects that are sometimes considered taboo. That we're, this is not something that we're ever going to mention. Maybe an event happens in a family or, you know, in one's personal life, and you never go back again, as if as if it never happened. But that kind of erasure doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't feel like that resolves much. If you if you don't ever go back, and deal with the material, it's always there. It's the kind of haunting, for lack of a term, I, I don't have a term for it. It's never gonna get resolved if you don't say something. So in this case, although I don't like to consider poetry as cathartic because there's all kinds of issues that might surround that, it is freeing in a way that I've gone a little further in my poems than I ever have before. and. It's out there now, it's going to be read. But, you know, sometimes people ask, what's, what's the use of poetry? What can it do? What is it, what's it good for? And I would say that it's not gonna save anybody. It doesn't have that kind of power, but it can stir someone, it can inspire them, it can let them know that they're not alone. And if you find a way to make some kind of beauty out of whatever the wreckage is, then in that sense, poetry is very powerful for that one person. And that's probably why a lot of us write. We're thinking of that one unknown person and what can I do to move them? And what will they do after that? That's a big unknowable. We never know the ripple effects. We may not know how we've touched someone or not, but we make that effort in the hope that it does. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's that's uh, it's always about reaching that one person i did i did sense there was a very that the things i never told you the you in that was a very specific person and i also uh because it wasn't stated who it was and uh, i'm not not going to ask you who it is i put my i had my own you in there uh so it was like a very specific thing that also made room for the reader, there's that, um, I don't remember who said it, but the more specific, the more personal, the more universal. So the more we get very specific, the more uh, readers are able to get pulled in with their own experience. And this poem really, really does that. Um, and it gives permission to say the unsayable and the topics that uh, this one in particular, which is still very, um, we don't talk about this. We just move on. We pretend like it didn't happen. We deal with it as quickly and privately as possible. All of those messages that we get that get transmitted in this culture to all of us somehow, even though nobody says them directly because nobody talks about it directly. So I love how even in a collection that is, as we talked about at the beginning, very slant, this one was pretty direct. And yes. I love that. I th I think that really respects the reader and I think that really respects the topic. Um, it's very hard. It's very hard. And even now, we haven't actually said the word because it's so hard to talk about. Um, but um, we don't need to. It The poem says it. Um, and I think that's that was um, the poem that just, it just continued to haunt me in a good way. Like, oh my gosh, I'm seen my experience with this 
is known, even though I have never told you. Um, so thank you for, for going there. This is a heavy topic, uh, between strangers. So, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I think, uh, it's always, it's always good to, uh, to be honest about our experiences, um, without kind of romanticizing them or making them more precious than they, than they actually are. And this poem does that, uh, really, really well. Um, there's another uh, topic that's pretty difficult for our culture, uh, and that is grief. This poem, um, or this collection, poem two, this collection talks a lot about uh, grief. It's sort of woven in throughout. Uh, there's one line that really grabbed me. It's from um, to Johnny uh, Ware on, I love you, I hate you. And you write, the end of grief is the beginning of fire. Um, so I'm interested, like the title is really interesting, but I'm also interested in the connection between grief and fire. I haven't seen anyone make that connection before and I love it. So um, yeah, any any way you want to take that <laughs> question, um, like the in, if that poem was, it, if it came to you kind of uh, as a whole, if it was um, like this idea of the end of grief, what what does that, what does that look like? Some people think grief never ends. Some people think they don't want to deal with it at all. Um, and then uh, there's, I have all kinds of things that I thought the end of grief is the beginning of fire means, but um, I'd love for you to, to share about that. Well, it's interesting that you're bringing up that poem because it's another one of those examples of surprise as a writer. Um, the poem begins describing this Olympic performance by Johnny Weir and the details of the costuming. He's got these sheer black gloves, which ties into the opening poem. So that's where I was heading initially. That Okay, it's, it's a fun poem. It's about something that I like, which is watching figure skating. It's got a bit of fashion. I'm going to explore that. But then as the poem goes on, it starts talking about other topics. There's another line in that poem that you mentioned that says, um, performance masks the hours. And I was thinking at the time, like how often as a writer or an artist, do people only see the finished product? You see the Olympic performance. You don't see the hours of training. You don't see the sweat. You don't see how many times someone had to fall down or fail and get up again. All of that is in the background. You're only seeing what's finished. But I've always been interested in what exactly goes on in that background, because it is a lot of work. There are going to be a lot of mistakes on the way. And that's really interesting to me. That's where the heart of writing is. It's in that struggle that's unseen, that you're writing alone, you're working through the work. So that's one part of the poem. And then somehow, that just morphed into thinking about living in Pittsburgh and how grief is, let me look for the line. I don't even know my own lines. That's not, um, let's see. I can relate to that. <laughs> yes. yes. The end of grief is the beginning of fire. I'm not entirely certain where that came from, but it felt right to bring that in. It seemed true. So in that sense, sometimes the work is better than the artist. It's wiser than you are. It knows something that you didn't know going in. And in terms of that specific 
comparison, I guess you could think of fire as either being generative and a creative force. It can also be devastating and very destructive and explosive at the same time. And grief, de dealing with that, it can be both. I mean, it can leave you feeling devastated, but you can generate something out of that. Oh, wow. That might have been where I was going with it. Um, there's, there's this vine, which I'm sure you know, about how those who sow in tears will reap harvest. So the grief, I mean, there are the tears. So what's the harvest going to be? Like a lot of times we think, okay, it'll breed empathy or endurance or patience. Going through these experiences is going to make you able to relate to other people in some manner. It's going to have a purpose. But all of that is sometimes really abstract and it feels really distant. Like when you're in the moment of grief, you might be thinking, I don't want any of that. I just want the grief to end. Right? So grief is the beginning of fire. It's not necessarily a bad thing. That fire could be a very good thing. Yes. Oh, wow. I had thought of the fire being creative and generative. I had not thought of the other dimension of fire, which is it's all consuming. It can destroy things. It's life threatening. And it's, it can be both, both of those things like beauty from ashes. Um, Ah, brilliant. There's another line that I wrote it down because it, or I um, copied it down because I it grabbed me also. And I didn't quite know why until just now, uh, speaking of fire, it's uh, from a poem called, what, your poem called, Why My Poems End on Fire. And the line goes, I don't know why splendor and loss mean the same. And I just now connected those two lines. The uh, the end of grief is the beginning of fire. And I don't know why splendor and loss mean the same. Um, but it seems that those are two just incredibly insightful ways of saying similar things. That this, it's destruction and creation. There's a very thin line between them. There's just, there are two sides of the same coin. One can come out of the other. Um, I also just love the title, why my poems end on fire. I just love it because, uh, it's really true. It's just, it's so true. Um, and it's very different than saying they end in fire, saying they end on fire. Um, there was just so much of that, that really captures the energy of this collection. It's, there's this intensity in every poem that adds up to, um, in, and it's, and I mean, some, some people use intensity as a pejorative. I love intensity. And I think there's just that current that runs through the whole collection of intensity. And uh, I'm wondering, is, was that kind of your experience when you were, when you were writing it? Um, there's this just level of charge, uh, almost electricity going through this whole current uh, or this whole collection. Um, and each individual poem has has its own specific type of energy. That's a really perceptive reading because I hadn't even picked up on that splendor and loss being tied to the earlier line. But um, in terms of the experience of writing these poems, I tend to write across a very long period of time. So this 
my first book was in 2012, and this one's coming out in 2024. That's almost a dozen years in between. That's a really long gestation, a really long time to be thinking about these. So I was writing the poems mostly individually until I started to sense a theme that would pull them together. So I wouldn't exactly say that there's this intentional intensity running across it because it happened over such a very long period of time. But um, just coming back to that idea that every poem has that kind of volatility, if you will, I think for me that's just become a kind of signature. I've been told on several occasions that my work is dark. Well, I, I don't intend for it to be dark. I've been told that it's a little strange, a little bit haunting. I can't explain that exactly. That's just the way I write. So if there's an intensity that's coming across, it has to do with experience. It has to do with how I perceive things. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on that. Yeah, it's it sounds like as you said a signature. It's just it's the way that the, the it's the way poetry comes for you. And I feel like um you're you're one of those writers where if I were reading a poem and I didn't know who it was by, uh like it didn't say anywhere, I didn't have it like I'd be able to recognize that intensity. It's like, ah, yes, I've read I've read this before. I've read this voice before. I would say um there's a, a jubilation in it. Um, yeah. Okay. There's dark parts or whatever. And I, yeah, it's, it's always the, the things people pick up on. It's like, wow, that's not intentional. How interesting. Um, but there's just this energy, there's this passion, there's a, this intensity. And I feel that it comes through in, in any topic. Um, there's a, a line here that is um, from the poem to Carolina Costner on Bolero and you write because I've walked through gray cities gray futures I love the sudden break as evidence of nothing exactly but the surface of things tattooed with light before a cloud leads on the hill leads the hill I still believe in beauty there's a lot about beauty in this collection um because there's several um poems too or about figure skaters and figure skating is just a gorgeous sport it's to me it's impossible like how are humans doing this i just watch it and i don't understand um or how are you defying gravity how are you not falling on your face on the ice and you mentioned that though you mentioned how many falls did it take to get that triple axle how many falls did it take to get that whole routine down so that you, the audience, can see the perfection? Um, so in that vein, um, what uh, was the process of revision like in this collection? I'm someone who values precision in poetry a lot to the extent where I want every single word to count. So in that sense, that might explain where the appeal of figure skating comes in. You're on this extremely thin blade on dangerous ice. You have to be so precise about it. And I love that. I mean, I really respect that level of awareness of your own body, of movement and time, of space. And I found that kind of inspiring. And around in 2019 or so, I don't remember if that's like the beginning of the pandemic. Now it's all a blur in the past, but I was, watching a ton of figure skating 
on YouTube. I was following the whole season, pretty much. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I was thinking, there's a poem in this somewhere. I can use this. And a lot of the times I write about art in different forms, like paintings. Maybe that's more familiar, more traditional. But I thought, how, how can I translate this? It's movement. It's a physical movement. How can I put that into words? And that became a kind of challenge to me. So I'm glad that you pointed this poem out because even though the beginning describes a little bit of what the figure skating performance was, that's not where it ends and that's not where it goes. It becomes very associative with different images. So that that's that poem in particular. Now to go back to your question of revision, for me, because writing is such a lengthy process, a lot of the revising you could say happens beforehand. I mean, I've thought about the line for so long that when I put the line down, that might be it in some cases. But in other cases, the revision is lengthier. It might go through multiple drafts, but it tends to be very instinctive. I'm not thinking on the level of sound or craft or line break or any of these little details that I might have thought about maybe 20 years ago in the beginning. But after a while, you kind of absorb the how, the how to make a poem. And you gain a certain trust in yourself about, okay, that was the right move. Or no, that does not work at all. And you get to a certain point where you just know that this is working out or this is not. So revision for me has that kind of ingrained impulse. I kind of know what I'm doing, even as I don't know what I'm doing at all, if that makes sense. So I think for me, the key to revision is reading out loud. I actually read the entire collection to myself out loud repeatedly because it's that sound, that sense for sound. You know when a line lands on the mark and when it doesn't sound right at all. And that's, that's mainly how I revise. It's by whether or not I can read this work with a certain fluidity, whether it's hitting the right note. So yeah, I hope that answers that. That is amazing. The a lot of revision happens beforehand. That is, um, that's brilliant. I have never thought about it that way, but it, it really, I mean, I've done that too, right? You, you think and you think and you think and you're not writing, but you're like, what word goes here? What word goes here? And then by the time you've written it, you've already done your revision. I love that. Um, and then reading it out loud. Yeah. You know, if it sounds right, it doesn't matter if, if it's like, well, you know, logically this word should go here. This word should go here. It's how does it sound when it's, when it's read aloud, which is really interesting because most people don't read poetry out loud to themselves, but that's the way to tell if a line works. Um, and yeah, it, it also made me go like, do I think too hard about my line breaks? I probably do. I probably am wasting a lot of time thinking too hard about things that uh, you can't tell really when you're reading out loud um, that happen in poetry. That's, that's, gosh, that's, that's great. Um, I don't usually uh, talk about revision in, uh, in my interviews. Cause you know, a lot of times people are like, Oh, no one sees my first drafts. And um, which is, which is fine. A lot of people don't see my first drafts either. Um, 
but a lot of your, what you're saying is sometimes a lot of times the first drafts are, they stay in your head until they're ready to, uh, to come out. And there's a, that long, um, gestation process that you, that you said, uh, that we talked about, uh, I'm familiar with that too. And yet there are still surprises. Um, this collection included things that you're, you're like, well, I didn't intend to write about that. And yet here it is. Um, and I wonder, since you, you said that, uh, some of this was, uh, ended up being, uh, autobiographical, uh, there's, uh, also, uh, I wrote another line down from a poem that I quoted earlier, uh, watching Freddie Lyon in, in the hour you write, um, what happens after news that stays news grows cold? I thought everything mattered. I, again, this was a line where I was like, I feel like I've had this thought, <laughs> just not as clear. Um, I, uh, was there, was there a moment that you were in particular describing where you were, cause I, it felt visceral to me, this line of, I thought everything mattered. I was like, yeah. And I remember the moment I learned that that's not true. And I felt it. I felt that moment again, when I read that line, um, news that stays news grows cold. Oh man. So I have so many thoughts about this, but I would love to hear kind of your reflections on that line and, um, kind of what, what the feeling the felt experience was, um, in writing that. But that particular poem was inspired by another TV series. I mean, clearly I spent the pandemic <laughs> watching all kinds of things, but um, I don't want to give the plot spoiler, but in it you have this young guy who's working on a news show in the 1950s and a lot of um, difficult events happen to him. And throughout it, he's got this conviction and this determination about wanting to know the truth of what's gone on. And again, without, you know, like detailing the whole plot, by the end of the first series, you get the sense that, that you can't, that, that you want a certain justice, you want a certain outcome, you want things to come out right in the end. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes the story just goes away and no one is willing to listen to that particular truth. But you're right, there, there is a certain personal aspect to that as well. And in terms of the news that stays news grows cold, that's a little bit of a, of a twist. William Carlos Williams has this line about news. So I was going there in a different kind of direction. And I thought everything mattered, nobody heard. I'll, I'll read you what comes after that. I too mistook the works salvo for self. There, there's the feeling that you're going through all of this, whatever it happens to be, and you somehow think that that energy, that enthusiasm, that fire, that somehow it's gonna save you, that this work is going to give you what you think you need or want but it's not a self and it, and it doesn't. And then you have to live with that. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yes. I, oh man, I, I love that all of the lines that I picked out and I could have 
probably just quoted the whole thing, um, which is why uh, I will be including in the show notes where you all uh, can find this collection when it comes out, which is not uh, until June of next year, but uh, and next year being 2024, if you are listening to this uh, in the next month, um, that it was a very visceral collection. The lines that I picked out were because I felt them. I, they, the recognition of them was was very physical for me, which is, it's an unusual experience uh, for, for poetry. So, uh, I mean, I love poetry, but it's very, usually very cerebral. And this was cerebral and the moments of recognition. I was like, I can point out where in my body that line lives. Um, it, was, it was so, so brilliant. Um, I, uh, so to, to kind of, around uh, the last corner here. I mean, I could uh, talk, as I've said in most of my interviews, I could talk uh, all day, <laughs> but I would love to hear what, um, if there's, if there's something that you, that you're, you're hoping that your, your ideal reader, the, the you, as it were, uh, I don't like saying the word audience because um, you, and you've mentioned this too. When I write, I kind of, I'm imagining one person, um, that and aiming the poem at the one person and it could be different people for different poems, but like, there's not the stadium of people out there, but, um, if there's one, uh, thing or two things that you're like, I, if my collection does X for this reader, I will have satisfied the goal of the work. Um, what, what would that be. I know that's a very confusing way of wording that question. <laughs> what are your hopes for this collection and its impact on the reader? That seems like a very large kind of hope <laughs> to have, but um, I think it would be a sense that there's someone else out there, meaning me, who's writing this, that has maybe gone where the reader wouldn't have gone for themselves. Like the fact that you mentioned that it's very visceral and that you felt it physically. I mean, I appreciate that so much. That's exactly the kind of response. I want someone to feel moved, whether because they connect to the topic or the material or whether because it's unexpected, it's a new encounter, they see something in the language, they find those little lines that you've been pointing out that speak to them in a personal way. I think that's all any writer can really ask for, really, is that just one person out there that it made a difference to them, and so the work wasn't in vain. The work did what it set out to do. That's what I would say. Yes, I love that. Um, I love that so much. That's the, uh, <laughs> it's a very large hope. It is, yes. Um, and I, I think, you know, at least for, for me that, um, it, it, this, this collection did go where I hadn't gone, where I don't know that I would have uh, been willing to without, um, a guide, so to speak. Um, so thank you so, so much for this collection. Before we close with, um, one final poem I'd love for you to read, I, um, 
I'd like to, to ask, is there anything that I have not asked you that you wish I would have? Yes, I've been waiting for someone to ask me about the gloves. What's going on with these repetitive gloves? <laughs> yes. About the collection. I'm like actually waiting for someone very academic or a reviewer to come and tell me so that I'll know what this symbol represents. I mean, I'm sure someone could come up with an idea about layers of hiddenness or privacy and it being removed and and so on. I, I want something deep. But the real story behind that is that um, I had these various references in mind. There's Rita Hayworth in her movie, Gilda. And she does this song and dance where it all comes down to removing the one glove. So I put that in the opening poem. And there's this other little line in the opening poem about watching a man take his gloves off with his teeth. And that's such an obscure little reference that I put in there that I've been waiting for someone to ask me, what is that about? <laughs> and I'll go ahead and tell you. Yes. It actually comes from figure skating. One of my favorite figure skaters is Yuzuru Hanyu, who won the Olympic gold two times. He's a legend. He has a lot of integrity off the ice. And he has this enormous fandom to the point where even if it's just time for rehearsal or warm-up practice, they've all lined up outside for hours ahead of time to watch. And, and you can see this on the YouTube videos of the competitions or whatever, but every now and then he, he has a black glove that he removes with his teeth. And it's just so sassy and so playful. And it's at the same time, so mundane. Like wh why would anyone think to remark on that or comment on that? But people know him for that. And I had to put that kind of little Easter egg in the poem just for myself. So I've been waiting for someone to ask me what's going on with these gloves. Oh man, it was so obvious. I was like, oh, well, uh, probably it would be boring to ask about the gloves. She probably gets asked about that all the time. That's because I was like, yes, the gloves show up. That one with the taking off, I could see that taking the glove off with the teeth. I could see that so clearly. And I was like, yeah, I kind of do that when I'm in a hurry and I only have one hand I like grab and I've almost bit my finger sometimes. Um, so uh, it is, it's so mundane. It's like, oh yeah, I'm sure plenty of people take their gloves off with their teeth, but that is such, I love that Easter egg. I love it. Um, and it's so funny that I thought, oh, it's so obvious that I'm sure everybody asks about it. <laughs> so I didn't, um, but I'm so, I'm so glad you included that. Yes. Um, and uh, weird that, people haven't asked you because <laughs> I was like surely that's the obvious question um which is why I didn't ask so um before I uh ask you to read a final poem where can people find you where can people find the book that is this is coming out June 2024 so uh not for some time yet um is it available for pre-order uh and then where can people also find your first book um and kind of uh your other works um and to kind of follow follow you, website, things like that. Where can people find you? Everything you could want to know about me or my book, you can find at karenrigby.com. I'm not a social media person, so you just go to that main hub and it'll tell you everything you need to know. The book is available for pre-order from Bookshop and all of the usual places, but yeah, karenrigby.com.
Excellent. I will put that link uh, and also the link to the bookshop book because uh, uh, I found it there. Um, love bookshop. Love to support that. They order from independent bookstores. Um, so we're big fans of that too. Uh, so I'll put all of those links in the show notes that you uh, can find um, after a uh, summary of the book and uh, biography of Karen. So to close out, would you be willing to read Girl, I Can't Bring Back? Girl, I Can't Bring Back. Girl in yellow capris. Rabbits appliqued on each knee. Forgive me for the years I didn't love you or the pale ones on a gurney called anhedonia. Forgive my nested selves, thin as balsam, who dined on memory, like mammals that rake what the lion leaves, girls with dyed burgundy hair, catwalk of grim supplicants. They never saw their own beauty. Forgive velvet and wire tongues that sought cures on the altar of no good and the year of emergencies. Girls who built a marquee of their grief. Forgive hands like bird bone dioramas, each hollow a skyless dream. They were all of them me in river cities, blue hours, inked lines down their sheets. Forgive each night I wrote them into blankness. The moon was never a lozenge, but a distance no language speaks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for this collection. Thank you for uh, guiding the reader to places they may not go themselves. They may not know they've needed to go themselves. That's what this poem was for me. Um, going, going back and, and getting the pieces of that little girl for me that I didn't know were still there. Um, yeah, this collection is brave and sassy and deep and serious. Um, I am excited for it to come out. Uh, um, I feel special that I got to read it early, um, but it's uh, it's it's uh, worth the wait. So I will put, again, as I said, uh, ways for you, the listener, to find, um, excuse me, to, to find the book, the, the, the collection, and I'll link to the uh, the website, karenrigby.com in the show notes. Uh, you can pre-order uh, Fabulosa that is forthcoming from Jack Leg Press in 2024. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Megan. All right, listeners, that's all for this episode. Um, stay tuned next time and we will see you soon. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.